Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. All right, and I will simply add, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. So this is our final week looking at the second half of 1 Thessalonians, and this is a letter from Paul, a prominent leader in the early church, to the entire church, which would have been one gathering of people in the city of Thessalonica, which was a port city uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, and it was not uh, so huge as to be one of the largest city in the, cities in the area, but it was vibrant, and it was a critical city. Um, And in that entire city, there was one gathering of Christians, and they would have read this letter uh, in one sitting and considered what it meant for them. They probably would have read it over and over again. So we've seen as we've studied it so far that these people were dealing with some confusion as to how they should live in light of a new and growing faith, and especially faith in this idea that Jesus was going to return. We've talked a lot about that in previous weeks. But essentially, Paul teaches them not to do anything different, um, kind of like a don't, don't freak out, don't, um, don't, don't start living a different life, do your normal things. Um, you should go to work, live a quiet life, do the basics, and, uh, but infuse your life with a deep hope, even in the face of things like death, uh, because you have a hope that is, is beyond this existence. And so this week... Paul, as he often did, ends the letter with a priority list. And many many of these things that you just heard are generally applicable to us, um, but he did have them specifically in mind for this church in Thessalonica. And so the question is, what can we see and learn from reading this priority list for them? And so I want to show you in there like an implicit potential that the, the body of Christ, the people who gather to worship God, the potential that they have, a problem, uh, the practices and the peacemaker. I've got all P's and later you're going to hear a list of all D's. I worked really hard this week. So if, if you ever wonder if I try as a pastor, um, I do. And I, every once in a while I get all P's and all D's. So it's pretty, pretty sweet. The potential. Uh, the Christian community has so much potential. Um, imagine the scenario that, that was painted for us and what Ty just read, um, where leaders are respected and highly esteemed, not because it's forced upon people, but because when you look at their work, it is so well done and meaningful and worthwhile that that's just the result. Where people are at peace, where issues and weaknesses are worked out and where people are helped with the things that they're struggling with, where there is no retaliation, but rather a commitment to doing good to one another, where the people are happy and they express their thankfulness often, um, where they boldly listen to God and are led by God's spirit and where they offer meaningful and deep things to one another that, that others may not have the depth to tap into. 
They're people of truth that can be trusted. Not the belligerent type, but the patient type, the scripture says. The type that are patient with everyone. A gathering of Christians that followed this list would stand out and impress everyone who encountered it, um, even those who disagreed, I'm convinced. Um, And I think people would want to be a part of it, even before they understood the beliefs. That's the potential that the Christian church has. But the problem, there's a flip side to every single one of the priorities on this list, right? Um, There's a reason that Paul had to bring them up. He wouldn't have had to say anything about them if they were just happening naturally. In fact, our very natures pull against all of these potentialities as do the forces around around us, and we feel the effects of that. Paul taught these people first to respect their elders, okay? Um, Those who labor among them or oversee them um, are their elders. He taught them to respect their elders because they didn't always do it. Perhaps their elders didn't always do the perfect job that was respectable. Perhaps people weren't aware of what the elders did to some degree, and so therefore didn't respect it. And likely, it's a a little bit of both. Um, Now, elders, as we try to practice here at Mission, were these heads of households who were given more responsibility and Someone like Paul either appointed them or the church elected them. And as churches matured, they were encouraged to look around and ask, who are the types of people that teach and shepherd other people toward Jesus in their lives? Who are those people in our midst? As the name implies, they were more mature in age and faith. Um, The lifespans back then weren't what they are today, by the way. So they didn't have a lot of 90-year-old Elders, it seems like people began being elders when they were around 30. So, John, you're in. You can do it. Um, Jesus began teaching at age 30, and that that was following kind of the typical role of the time, that that's when you might teach or become an elder or a rabbi. This role developed out of the Old Testament. Um, The first time we see something like it is Moses is leading God's people out into the wilderness, and his father-in-law, who wasn't Jewish, but was wise, gave him some good advice. He said, why don't you break the community up and and have people uh, kind of help guide and adjudicate between folks, because you are not going to be able to oversee them well on your own. So he divided it up among people who were responsible. And it stuck in the Christian uh, or in the Jewish community, as in many other cultures, because it is good advice, but it doesn't always go well. Positions of authority can be abused. Those people in the Old Testament were called judges, and there's a book about judges. If you read that book, the essential um, storyline of the book is things are a little rough, and they descend into utter chaos until everything falls apart. That might be a description of the book of Judges. So just because judges exist doesn't mean they do a good job. Just because elders exist doesn't mean they do a good job. Um, Also, at the core of the story of humanity, submission is something we humans struggle with. In the garden, God simply asked people to trust him, and we rebelled then, and we have never stopped. I assume if I asked each one of you, if you could think of a rebellion story in your life, I think you could. What if I pushed it a little bit and said, how about this week? I think you could. (laughs) I could. 
When Jesus was here on earth, he was the ultimate elder. He was wise. He actually knew the heart of God. His teaching reflected that. He was compelling. People loved to listen to him. But when he didn't lead the way people wanted him to, or his leadership challenged the system, whether that was Rome or the people of God, by the way, we turned on him, betrayed him, ran away, ashamed of him, and misrepresented the truth, and we killed him. And I say we intentionally because I know you and I weren't there. But the same types of people who were there, very religious types, very political types, um, people who wanted to keep the order, people who wanted to disrupt, they were all there. And you're all here. So when Jesus was, was here, the perfect elder, we took him out. Friends, I am a, I'm an elder here. Um, and I'm not the perfect elder. Mike is really good. Um, but he's not. He's not the perfect elder. Um, John, no. Andrew, no. I... Not even Ray. Not even Ray. So we get it. It's hard to esteem us. It's, it really is, okay? And on top of that, you likely have no idea what it's like to have that role and that responsibility. Um, and that's not your fault because you just have to do it to experience it. Often I say this, when somebody wants to be an elder, it concerns me. Um, it really does. When someone's pretty unsure, though, I think maybe I should listen to that. But then again, I'm like, but also they might be great. Um, because the truth is, nobody's entirely esteemable, right? Nobody's a great elder. But we're called to esteem our elders. Paul instructed these people also to be at peace. Why did he instruct them to do that? Because they were often not at peace, right? If there's one thing I've learned as a leader, whether it's in pastor, uh, like pastoring or you know, working with business, and I, I've, I've led in a few different areas, it's that there is a near constant need to reconcile because people are always getting sideways with each other, and we're rarely ready and able to address it in a healthy way. And we have our reasons. We have our reasons for this. We all grew up with different experiences around conflict. Some of us recoil from conflict. I'm, I'm a little more like that. Um, others run right into it. I always, I meet those people like, how do you do it? You know, they see like, it's like someone's about to kill somebody over there. I want to be in the middle of it. Like, really? Because I want to be away from it, right? But we, we all have a different way of answering the question, how do I defend myself? Some of us would say, I defend myself by getting in the middle of it, while others would say, I defend myself by steering clear of it, okay? So when Paul says, be at peace, that feels entirely counterintuitive. In fact, it can feel risky, and it requires a lot of trust in God because it can hurt. And then Paul taught them to admonish the idol. This is an interesting, of, of all of the words in here, this is the least helpful because the word idol, we tend to think of the word lazy, but that is actually not at all the word. The word here in the New Testament is only used here, actually, in the New Testament. And it's the word for a soldier that is out of rank and being disobedient. Um, it's like this. It's when you're told to do something. Um, oh, sorry. It's when you're doing something 
but it's not what you were told to do, right? You're doing something, but not what you've been, you, what you've been instructed to do. Commentators believe that here Paul is probably referring back into the letter to where he talked about how people were, they'd heard of the return of Jesus, and so they started living opposite lives to what they'd been told to do. They'd been told to love one another. They'd been told to serve one another. They'd been told to make disciples. And instead, they were kind of hunkering down, maybe speculating, maybe you know, developing kind of a prophetic persona where they became criti- critics of their neighbors and their families. And he's going, officer, back in line. Like, what are you doing? So yeah, we said Jesus is coming back. Why did you change what we told you to do? You said do this. Don't do that. And that's kind of what what that word is getting at. To admonish the idol is not to say, hey, lazy person, wake up. It's to say, hey, uh, no, 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 no. You're running after something and you got to stay with the plan with what we told you to do. Now, look, I've done my version of this. Um, I bet a few of us have. There's, here's one version. You become a Christian um, or, or you have like a renewal moment in your life and all of a sudden you're rethinking everything, right? Like I've heard how many people who are going to college, you know, they're going to college, they become a Christian and they go, college? I don't need, <laughs> this stinks. I don't like college. I'm gonna reach people for Jesus and so I'm done with college, I'm going over here. Or, you know, all of a sudden, like the 21 year old becomes a Christian and they're like, I know how to lead a church. I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna start my own, right? I have felt all of these things. All of these things. Okay, and there's a gift to the zeal of youth. Or you get new information, you discover a new theological factoid. Or, or, or some, you deep dive into something. For some people, you know, re- Reformed theology is something I'm into, but it's become cool in some circles, at, you know, at, at certain times. And you discover it, and you get in there, and you go, whoa, this is something else, you know? And, and people make all sorts of wild decisions when they go down these rabbit holes. Or, or you discover, I mean, as these people did, Things around like Jesus is going to return and you discover there's a lot of different ways of thinking about that. And you find one, you like it. You like it a lot. And you start going down that path and you start, you're like, all of a sudden you're like, that castle on Fifth Street would be a great place for me and my friends to prepare for the end times. And there's this brand of Kool-Aid. If I mixed it, do you see where this is going? Bad things happen. You drink the Kool-Aid. That came from us doing silly stuff, that phrase came from us making mistakes. There's a thousand theological rabbit holes, and now there's a YouTube channel for every single one of them, and we need to admonish the idol. Don't change the game, the game plan of what we were called to do as Christians. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Fill the earth and subdue it. Make disciples. Same, same. Don't change it. Okay? Admonish the idol. Then Paul taught them to encourage the faint-hearted. The word for faint-hearted here is probably best summed up with the word worry. People are worried. Jesus were worried back then, maybe about Jesus' return, but maybe about all of the other things that could worry them. Um, Jesus himself had taught in, in his most famous sermon that the worries of life and the deceitfulness of riches are what take people who, who have budding faith, new faith, and, and 
lead them to disengage from it. It distracts them. It, it, it takes them out of the kingdom. The worries of life and the deceitfulness of riches, at best, those things can get you stuck and not able to mature. See, we all worry. Some of us worry so we can't stop working. And some of us worry so we can't start working. We get kind of stuck. Sometimes it's the obsessions that lead into the fears, and the fears sometimes lead into the obsessions, and sometimes it's just a hamster wheel. And we need courage to face our fears with faith. And that almost always has to come through somebody who loves us, encouraging us, right? Paul taught them to help the weak. It isn't clear whether this is physical or spiritual weakness, and I think we don't really need to decide. The two are one. The mind and body work together. Some of us may have weak faith or weak bodies, um, but either way, our tendency is to leave people who are weak on their own, um, often because the issues people face can be overwhelming to us. There's, there's one version of doing this, and that is where you say, look, we all have to do this ourselves. It's the bootstrap mentality where everyone has to just get this done by themselves. If I don't help, if, or if I help them, I will actually enable them. It's not good to help. And so you can use that to not help the weak. Or, and this is the more popular one, because there's a new thing called self-care, which is a really great corrective to not caring for yourself. But it is an excellent way to not help weak people and still feel righteous. It's an excellent way out. Because you can look at somebody and say, I just can't. I got to take care of myself first. And so we don't help the people who are weak. Paul taught them to be patient in all these situations because people were not being patient. They wanted others to stop and be fixed now already because it requires time and effort to deal with people in any kind of situation. Um, the old English word for this is the worst word in the world long suffering, as if suffering isn't bad enough. They added long to the word, right? Long suffering. Whew. And interestingly, that is one of the words that's used to describe somebody who's full of the spirit of God. Long suffering, patience. Patience is longer suffering. It renounces the quick fix as a prerequisite for loving engagement. See, it, it renounces the quick fix as a prerequisite for loving engagement. When you look at something and say, you know what, I think I could help them, I think it'd be pretty quick, and then there's this person where it's going to take maybe the rest of my life. Which one are you more likely to engage? Patience plays the long game and hopes ultimately in the Christian belief in glorification, which is that God finishes the work we don't and maybe even cannot complete in this life. Paul told them not to repay evil for evil, but to seek to do good to each other because people like us all uh, like to even the scales of justice. We want to withhold kindness from people that aren't kind. We want to trade insult for insult. You're being selfish? Well, yeah, you are dumb and ugly. That feels amazing, doesn't it? It ranges all the way from the cursory insult to gossip about the gossip to acts of covert or even overt violence. Um, we want to we even the scales of justice. It's so natural. 
Jesus sums up his teaching on returning evil for evil in a really unique and important teaching where he talks about if, uh, if someone, you know, they strike you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to them. If they take your cloak, give them your tunic as well. If they ask you to walk one mile, walk another one with them. And this is a deep teaching. I've spent time on it elsewhere. Um, I don't have time to go all the way into it. But it is incredible because it does two things. It doesn't excuse evil. It actually undermined, it undermines, exposes, and diffuses it. The quick explanation of this is this. It is not returning evil for evil in kind, but it is not excusing it. It actually exposes it. The most, they're all, the themes of all three of those are the same, but the one that illustrates it the most is the cloak and the tunic. In their day, um, you wore two pieces of clothing, your cloak and your tunic. Your cloak was your outer garment, your tunic was your underwear. And if they asked you for your cloak, you'd give it to them, and you'd strip yourself naked and hand them the rest. And you'd stand there as they took advantage of you. But you'd shame it. They didn't want you to do that. That's not what they asked for. It, it exposed what they were doing to you, okay? Not repaying evil for evil leads to more potential pain in the moment. It takes far more faith and creativity than saying, you're mean, but I'll be mean to you. Or you let me down, so I'm never going to show up for you again. Um, Jesus calls us to be far more engaged than that. Paul taught people to rejoice because the path of least resistance, as I know so much about, is complaining. I know about it because it is my default. There's so much that's underwhelming in the world. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to, to complain with another person? It is so, would you find someone that has the same complaint as you? It's like, brother, right? <laughs> the list is long and co-misery feels like the best company. They were to give thanks because not acknowledging good things is far easier. It is far easier. This is a scientific fact. Negative experiences are more memorable and capture our attention most easily. I seriously, I went into PubMed, found a study on it. This stuff's documented out there. People remember, they remember the good things happened. You know, remember the, what, what were we talking about? Waterfalls. Remember that 30-foot waterfall we saw? Pretty, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty. Okay. Remember that time that guy mugged us, you know, in the back alley? Oh, you remember that in detail. It was dark. It smelled like tuna fish on a Thursday night. The, you know, there was, there was a slight drizzle. The water was reflecting through, and here he was right from behind the garbage can, and he had a knife in his hand. And it, you remember all of it. It's a scientific fact. We remember these things. By the way, this is good. This is, Michaela asked a great question today. She, is this part of the fall or is this part of like our process of learning to survive? I think it's both. We had to learn to survive because we live in a fallen world. Um, but look, this very fact is why we don't see, if, we, if you were hiking right now and you saw a mountain lion, you wouldn't go, aw, come here. <laughs> why? Because impressed in your brain from ancestors of years and years ago, big cats kill us. And our people have learned this. This is good. We remember those things even though we didn't experience it ourselves. Isn't that crazy? We innately sense when something is evil, dark, and dangerous. But the downside is that negativity embeds itself deeply 
into us and is our absolute knee-jerk reaction. It takes work to be grateful. We have to work it in and we have to like try. So we don't. Then Paul taught them to pray actively throughout the day because they often forgot to connect to God in their moment-by-moment experience. They prayed when it felt like a spiritual moment, not realizing that every single moment is a moment lived before and with God. And we do the same thing, right? If, we're, if you're a super Christian today, you pray at lunch. That's big. You're at lunch, you're out, you pray. <laughs> right? Big deal. Okay. You confess that you say, I do a quiet time every day. People are like, whoa, hey, overachiever. Right? And then if you are like, you have a room in your house for prayer, you have reached Christian enlightenment. Like, you have arrived. But those are all good things. The truth is, God is present with us in every single moment, right? Not just at lunch, not just in the quiet time, not when you go into that room. Those are all good practices. But your life is lived before the face of God every single moment. And so we don't pray without ceasing. We often forget that God is with us all the time, and we live like this. We think that it's only when we kind of look up and get in the mode. Paul taught them not to quench the spirit or despise prophecies because there's a pendulum swing that can happen. For those who were taught to focus on their daily lives, probably because they were, they were hearing these exciting things about the return of Christ and they were, they were really tending to like just buy into all that and move away from their daily practices. If, you, if you're not careful, you can also miss the invigorating pulse of what God's spirit is leading you to do. And to hear words about supernatural things and not mute them down or discard them. Today in Christian circles, it can feel like there's the, ex- the expressive and the emotional you know, realms and the academic and worldview camps. And the truth is that swing often swings well, way too far. Um, I grew up in what's called Pentecostalism, okay? And Pentecostalism um, reads some of the most like, profound moments in the scriptures about the Holy Spirit engaging with God's people. And it puts a lot of stock in those moments, the supernatural and emotional sides of faith. And some relate to that very much. I grew up in it. I didn't so much relate to it. Um, and so as often happens when you grow up with something, you see the little inner issues and you run the other way, right? And so for me, I discovered like academic theology, right? And so it was like, oh, there's like books, thousands of words, and I can just reason, and, and then I can, I can do all the spiritual things, and I don't have to do any of that, you know, expressive stuff, right? So only in the past few years have I been more willing to acknowledge that sometimes there's, there like a, is a deep gut sense that I'll have about something, um, and that maybe that's God's spirit. Um, I've had a couple of dreams I've shared with you all in the past couple years that were like actually pointing to something that happened and to actually go, okay, maybe it's not all books. Maybe the spirit is working in my life and in our midst, right? I know in, um, in the circles we are affiliated with, by the way, so I talked about my, you know, Pentecostalism version. So then you get into the more academic circles. Guess what? They all want to be Pentecostal. I've been, now that I'm working with these people, they all, I, 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 I kid you not, so many of them are like, the Pentecostals are, got it, you know? I'm like, ah, oh, okay. 
it feels like we all just sort of need to like swing that pendulum right down in the middle and do both, right? Paul essentially is saying this. Um, he, he doesn't say it one, one or the other way. He kind of says, you know, when you, heard the, when you heard the word of prophecy that said Jesus was going to return, okay, don't go do anything crazy. Don't, don't sell all your stuff. Don't just go to work, work with your hands, shut your mouth, relax, but believe the prophecy. Kind of like he does both. Finally, Paul got them to discern, uh, to hold on, or taught them to discern, to hold on to the good, to practice abstinence in regards to all forms of evil. Because often the evil thing is desirable, right? It's just true. I still, I've been eating healthy for over a year now, so mo- um, pr- really most of the time. But I still, you put a piece of broccoli and a piece of cake in front of me, I know which one I want. Um, why? Why is this true? Why is that like not only true about cake and broccoli, right? Why is it true about a lot of things? Um, why is that so difficult? The evil is often desirable, but then on top of that, reflecting and discerning between good and evil is difficult. It's not always so clear. Like somebody say, is it wrong? Do you, drinking alcohol, right or wrong? My answer is, I have no idea. Why do you want to? Right? Like that, it's a way bigger and more difficult conversation. Lying, right or wrong? Usually wrong, but why do you ask? Right? Is there a child being chased by a murderer? Then don't tell the murderer where the child is. Lie now, right? It's not, it takes work to discern between good and evil. So the problem is really a long list of problems, and it's this flip side of this beautiful potential. All the things we naturally move toward that kind of draw us um, are kind of getting in the way of our potential. The potential becomes really difficult to do, so what do we do? This is supposed to be a talk about hope. You've been looking at the hope word up there. It doesn't sound very hopeful. What, where's the hope? Why cast a vision, Paul, that is so problematic to keep? Why even show us our potential when the truth is we're messing it up all the time? Well, if it were just a vision, it would fail, but it isn't. It's a lifestyle. It's a community set of practices. That's what I want to show you, the practices. This isn't a solo project. I mentioned this last week, but um, you may, like me, have been trained to read the Bible as a book to me, a book from God to me. You know it's not the case, but you read it that way. Right? That's how I, I tend to read it. This is like a, a book of God to me. It's a self-help book. If I were to go to the store and there's a self-help section, I would expect a Bible right in there. But it is not that. All these items on the to-do list are phrased to us. And the Bible furnishes practices that create a community of hope. So just to go back down the list, not, not every single piece of it, but respect and esteem your elders The Bible provides a roadmap here teaching that we are to actually appoint elders for each other. This is kind of an interesting thing, right? I I don't know if you all know this, but like what we try to do this here together is there, you don't, you can't become an elder because I say so, or I appoint you or anything of that nature. You, the members of our church, have to say this person is somebody we think is an elder, And then the existing elders are supposed to examine that person and see if they are indeed that type of person. And that's how somebody gets that role. And by the way, if one of us isn't living up to that, there are systems to discern that and follow through with that. In fact, our elders have elders. 
um, that oversee us from other churches. So if we're all in cahoots doing evil, you can go right over our heads to them. Why? Well, do you see, there's a lot of we going on in there. There's like the bigger church, the churches of the Southwest that we've said, hey, we want to submit to that. We want to listen to what you all have to, if, if our people need to override us, we want them to have a way to do that. Um, the, the elders are supposed to come from within, from you. They're supposed to be recognized by the people of the church. This is because leaders are most worthy of respect when they're respected before they're leading. And when they remain apart and accountable to those they serve. One of the things I love about this church is it's tiny, right? Like many of you know me pretty well. You know, all of our elders are known. Like, by the way, like you, you all could like go down the list of like, here's why, like if somebody said, is Andy the perfect elder? You go, no, <laughs> like here's 10 reasons I, I know. And we, all, and we all know these things about each other, but I think that's good. You guys know like the fight and the struggle that even your leaders are in to try to follow Jesus. It's hard to follow Jesus, you know, follow somebody who's following Jesus when you think it's easy for him. It's not easy. And every member here, by the way, has an elder praying for them. I love that. And we don't just get to pray for you like in theory. It's not like, you know, Matthew Romero's name comes up and it's like, who's that? I know who he is. And so we get to pray for people we know. Truly, I think the practice here is just commitment to one another, to the church. You, when you're, when you're most committed, will feed into a culture of respect and esteem. The more involved we are, the more accountability there will be. You will make better suggestions. Your elders will be better informed. You will see their work and understand it better. And I think we'll gain respect for one another. By the way, I'm proud to say I get done with elders meetings a lot here and I go, this is my favorite group I've ever sat with. And so I just want you to know that. They're good guys. Be at peace. The following, here's, here's some ways to be at peace. Here's some practices. He says, admonish the out of line, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. Um, encourage one another, serve as if you're leading, address conflict early. I'm gonna go through these kind of early or kind of quick, but encouragement. Encouragement, he says in here, is one of the practices we should keep. It doesn't just mean console or give a listening ear, by the way. Encouragement is not just to hear somebody go, it's going to be okay. Encouragement is not just like, tell me all about it. That's a good place to start. But encourage, in the English, gets under this idea of like giving courage. Like impart courage to this person, right? And the Greek word is parakaleo, which sometimes is associated with the spirit of God, which means to urge or call, but can also include an element of comforting. It is so powerful when a person can both understand you enough and hear you enough to urge you to do what you ought to do while comforting you. It's absolutely powerful. It's really powerful when somebody can understand why trusting God is really hard, but still invite you to trust God. It's really important when somebody can understand the pain that you've gone through and comfort you while still not giving you permission to stop loving others and showing up for them, right? And by the way, none of these are listed as the job of an elder or a pastor. These are all just being a Christian. It's, it's all of us. Encouragement, though, is a practice. 
Remember, it's not going to come naturally. That's why Paul had to tell us to do this. You may have to prepare to encourage a person who's weak in faith. And ideally, you're speaking from being encouraged yourself. It's going to take inward work to encourage someone well and resolve. Serving is leading. Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, the elder of all elders, the creator, washed his disciples' feet and taught them to do the same. And what he was calling us to do was not just wash feet. That's, that was a symbol. He was calling us to serve one another. And again, this was to all of us. To all of us, we should be known for serving one another, to lift other, others up, to bind their wounds, to enter the mess. And people's lives are, are messy. It's easier to blog than to get involved. but we should get involved. We're called to serve. When Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet, by the way, he refused at first. And sometimes I think that serving, the serving people need isn't always what they're comfortable with, but it's still something we should seek to do. A servant is always thinking, what does my master need? And the call is to serve one another. So to be thinking, when you look around, what do my friends in this church need? and then to serve one another with patience. We, we become far more patient when we accept the calling to be a servant. I'm the most patient when I accept the call to serve. And you know what I slip into all the time? Is wanting to be served. And then it gets twisted. Addressing conflict early. Jesus taught his disciples something so simple but profound in Matthew 18. If you, feel wrong, if you feel wronged, this was to all believers, if you feel wronged by your brother or sister, what do you do? Go talk to them. That's what he says. Go talk to them. Um, now, I, I want to clarify, this is not what an abused person does with their abuser. That kind of thing has been said, and that's incorrect. But if you feel sinned against, even just a little bit, go talk to them. And typically, we, we can, and we should try. It's, it's something that can be done, but it's something we avoid doing because it's messy, right? But it says if, if it fails, if it doesn't go well, you won't bring somebody else along. And I think you bring a neutral person who can sit between the two of you and kind of help receive and translate things between the two of you. And if that fails, take it to the church. And to that, we, we believe that doesn't mean run up here and go, John stinks, you know, he did this. We think, take it to the people who do the discerning for the church and ask for their help. Um, now, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work. But it's a practice, it's a structure that God gave us because imagine what would happen if we worked through our issues by actually going to one another. How beautiful it could be, how much we would grow, and how much more our community um, would be healthy for it. How much more it would shape our responses to one another. And the final practice is rejoice. Paul pushes for expressing joy a lot in the Bible. Rejoice, he says. Joy is not, a feeling, uh, not feeling good or happy. It's having joy. Rejoice. Joy is a dogged commitment to believing that the good is the most true and that God is good. It's expressing thankfulness despite all the things that you could complain about. It's expressing the good news of God's grace despite the brokenness and darkness that surrounds us. It's expressing to one another hopeful things in the face of death, disease, disintegration, drug abuse, danger, divorce, demonic oppression, and destruction. It is not practicing, though, denial. See all those Ds? That was hard to do. 
It's fighting back darkness with light. It's not putting on spiritual band-aids. It's not just saying like, I'm happy when you're not happy. No, it's not that. But it's holding on to good things we believe to be true, even while acknowledging the darkness that is true in the world. It's combating the impact of lies with the highest truths. And we need each other for this because sometimes we can't see out of the fog. We fight the problems with the practices. There are more practices than these. These are just ones that were actually in this scripture. We are supposed to read our scriptures. We are supposed to sit in silence before God. The problems are real. The practices give us hope. The problems hurt our witness. The practices rebuild our witness. The problems evidence our sin. The practices, though, point us to Jesus, which is where we end on Jesus, the peacemaker, because it's all nothing. It's a lot of religious work without Jesus. The entirety of this letter that we're finishing today to the Thessalonians is framed by the hope that comes from Jesus. Here's how Paul started the letter. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Paul started this letter. And then he ends on the hope that they all hold, that Jesus will return and make all things new, and he will sanctify us completely. It says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What that means is may God himself finish the work that he started in you. May he entirely set you apart and perfect you. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how can a person with problems be kept blameless? You ever thought about that? How do you, how do you keep someone blameless who's not blameless? Because all, here's how. All the items on the to-do list have been done perfectly by Jesus. And Jesus's perfect keeping of the list has been credited to all those who will just open their hands, admit their problems, and receive his grace. So when God checks our list at the end of our lives in Jesus, we're treated as if we're blameless in him, even though we in ourselves are not. We're supposed to respect our elders because we're supposed to look beyond them and learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus did love his father in such a way that he even respected the elders of the temple as he grew up under them. Not until he was 30 years old did he begin to speak. Jesus did it exactly right. He came making peace. He reconciles us to God. He restores relationships. He brought people together. Look at his band of disciples. They were just as crazy and different from one another as all of us. He healed the sick. He fixed souls and bodies. He called those who were out of line back into what they were called to do. He did it with his disciples over and over again. Peter chops off a guy's ear. Peter, no, 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 no. Puts it back on. He encouraged people who were worried. He helped the weak spiritually and physically. Even on the cross, when we turned on him, betrayed him, ran away ashamed of him, things we all repeat over and over again, he did not return evil for evil. Rather, he looked up into heaven and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Every single thing that Jesus calls us to do, he has already done on our behalf. And we are called simply to receive it. He's the one who perfectly offers it to those around us. So we are called to offer what we can give, even though we will fall short for one another. To offer such things, the key ingredient is that we receive them. To offer the imperfect, we must hope that the perfect exists and has been given for us. To be a community of hope, we must rejoice in the hope that is to come but is already secured for us in Jesus, and we point one another back to Jesus. It's a community project. We have great potential but great problems. Jesus gives us practices to push back the darkness, but rejoice. The practices are pointing us to Jesus. Speaking of practices, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread from the table and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the wine from the table and he said, this is a new covenant, a new promise to you in my blood for the forgiveness of many. Remember me every time you take of these things. And this act of worship is meant for us. We can see the potential of what the church could be. We're very disappointed when we fail it, right? But we can come to him admitting our problems. When we line up in just a little bit during the music, what is that but an admission of I need a savior? And then we receive Jesus, embracing the practices that point us back to him, and we live our lives out of those practices, encouraging one another to do the same. So next I'm going to say a brief prayer, and I'll leave two minutes of silence for each one of us to reflect on these things and to maybe, uh, maybe you're focusing in on the, the problems or maybe you're focusing in on receiving Jesus or um, a calling to do this for one another. Um, anything you need to pray for, ask God to help for, that two minutes is for you. Uh, after that, we're going to sing together. The Lord's Supper table will be open. Um, we have giving in the back. Really, this next section of time becomes multiple modes of worship, including eating dinner together. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we proclaim his death until he returns as a community. When we give to, each, to uh, this church, we're saying what we have belongs to Jesus and it's meant to be used to encourage and take care of one another. When we eat together, we say, you are my brother and sister and I come to the same table with you um, because of the work of Jesus. And when we worship, we assert that God is our hope and our everything. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the chance to be with these people, these friends. Thank you that you don't leave us alone in this world. Um, it is disappointing to think about what we could be and what we're not, but I pray that you would give us a deep commitment to each other. I pray that you would empower us by the gospel, the good news that you have entered in, that you've kept the list in our place, and that we would stay committed to each other and to loving you. I pray that you would nourish our faith with this meal that you provide for us and lead us now as we pray.